Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am your co-host, Aaron Cameron. As always, with me is Adam Pawatik. Today's guest is Noah Gordon from Menkes. A He's the Director of Portfolio Management at Menkes. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Glad to be here. So, Noah... Um, uh, let's start with your history in the in the in the industry and how you ended up working with Mechas and doing what you're, you're doing there now. Sure. So, I uh, grew up in a tech household. Uh, my father retired at a very young age as a software executive, and I thought that was a great vocation, to be honest, and was always my my plan in life. But needless to say, uh, and similar to a number of my peers, uh, I got an opportunity to work in real estate, and the rest is history. I started out at a large shopping center developer in high school as a summer student. Had the opportunity doing what? Just curious. As a high school student, what uh, were you doing for the developer? Photocopying, filing, yeah. and uh, being a ringer on their summer baseball team. Perfect. I thought you were going to say asset manager, but I guess I guess not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that takes years of training. Come yeah. on. <laughs> Uh, so worked there for a number of years. Uh, decided to go into an MBA, which I did uh, out at Western. Took a couple year hiatus from the industry, not by choice, but just because of what was going on when I graduated. I uh, went mm-hmm. into finance, and then uh, about eight years ago, I had an opportunity to join the Menkes team. Great. So you graduated in two thousand eight. Seven. <laughs> <Yeah>. Close. <laughs> <laughs> September of seven. So. Sure. And then, so what were you doing when you started at uh, Menkes? I brought on to help uh, support and grow the third-party asset management uh, platform uh, and that's grown into an opportunity to also help uh, grow the Menkes platform through acquisition and development. I'm going to keep trying not to say Menkes because that's just what I have in my mind but Menkes just for everyone listening it's Menkes. That's correct. Okay and so now now you are the director of portfolio management so what does that entail? So we're a small shop uh, and we're uh, quite lean. So it entails a number of different things. So responsibility still on our third-party asset management portfolio. Also responsible on, on sort of our suburban commercial development and acquisitions. So I cover a lot of, a lot of ground and uh, wear quite a few hats. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the history of Mencus, you guys sold quite a large portfolio in and around the time, I guess, that you were looking for a job in the industry. And then I guess the goal has been to build that portfolio back up over the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. So 2005 was the big sale, yeah. uh, trying to time the market, which I think they did very well. A large sale, primarily to GWL of our, the industrial portfolio. And today, exactly, uh, the intent is to grow that uh, back up. Okay. And how many how many square feet do you have right now? You know, in the portfolio that uh, you know you're looking after. So in the portfolio that I'm looking after, it's uh, roughly three, three and a half million feet. And then uh, globally across the commercial portfolio, we're probably about six and a half to seven uh, with some large developments underway that'll certainly tip that scale. I'm, I'm kind of curious if we can just take a step back further. Like what's the history of Mancus? Like, you know, is it family run? You know, who's, what's the ownership structure look like and how did they get you know, to where they are today? Sure. So I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but that's yeah, uh, OK. Just ballpark. Yeah. Uh, over 60-year-old company founded by Murray Menkes, who mm-hmm. passed a couple of years ago. Uh, today, the company is run by his three sons, Peter, Stephen, and Alan. The company is resp- has uh, its hands in many different verticals of real estate, including low-rise homes, condos, and then obviously the commercial division, which I work with. But they started out building single-family homes and have graduated significantly since then. Clearly. Canada only? GTA, GTA only. GTA only. Interesting. Let's uh, let's dive in. Let's start with industrial. Like I, th- I think the assets under your management are predominantly industrial. Is that is that fair? I have a number of suburban office assets as well, but primarily industrial. What do you classify as suburban? Anything outside the four one six. Okay, okay, that's fair. Um, and that's three point five million. You said square feet, give or take. And that's combined of industrial and office. That's right. Okay. And on a personal note, what's your favorite of those two assets? That's a tough. That's a tough one. Uh, I certainly I like industrial. I think it's interesting to sort of see how different businesses use industrial real estate. It becomes a part of their actual business operations. And then similarly, I think that today's modern office development really changes or gives oppor- people opportunities to change the way they work, work better together, collaborate, and really give people a sense of community outside of the house. Because today you spend a lot more time at work than you do at home. My wife points it out regularly to me. Yes. 
So when you're looking at growing your industrial portfolio, is it more profitable or is it a preference to do spec builds? I know you do some spec builds uh, or to buy existing product. It depends. I think that part of the reason why we've been doing a lot of spec build today is because the specifications of buildings have changed so dramatically, wherein clear height, base spacing, number of doors, circulation around the building has become very important to today's best-in-class users, and they cannot operate in uh, traditional buildings. Similarly, though, if you have a good building in a great location or even an antiquated building in a great location, those users that require have a need specifically to be in those buildings in those areas have to make it work and they do so it it really is opportunistic and we we seek out good real estate across the board and it doesn't necessarily have uh you know that doesn't look a certain way okay so it's not a mold you just evaluate every opportunity as it's presented and crunch your numbers are there are there sub i mean maybe for our listeners that aren't as familiar with industrial is kind of complex because there's there's a lot of sort of sub classifications right i mean whether it's cross dock facilities or cold storage facilities and i'm sure you can list off seven or eight other maybe even more sort of these subcategories of industrial is there any one or a few in particular that maybe you can do it either way a couple that you are more focused on that you find you get better yields on are there others that you just you avoid at all costs maybe self storage because there's that additional you know risk of or cost to maintaining the, the storage? So in our portfolio, we really try to focus on plain vanilla real estate in great locations. So the idea that one size fits most analogy, where perhaps the return is a little bit lower, but the propensity to be full uh, on a constant basis is much higher. So we are very much return focused and we want to find producing assets. So the, the concept of picking something that works for most parties works well for us. I think that there are other groups that have made a lot of money focusing on those very specialized verticals within the industrial space, but that's not typically our business. So that'd be large fulfillment centers and kind of uh, buildings geared towards the the Amazons of the world versus you're looking for more utilitarian industrial real estate um, that will maintain occupancy in the bad times. Obviously, we're having great times right now in terms of vacancy rates in uh, an industrialist market, but you're looking for a kind of durable industrial that will be performing 10, 15, 20 years from now? Exactly. That's yeah. the idea. And is it yeah. things like, and I just, we just keep walking through this process. When you say plain vanilla, you're talking about a certain type of clear height, you know, not too small, not too low, but not too high, you know, um, space that can be easily demised, not too much office up front that could potentially, you know, diminish the, 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 uh, the value, you know, what, what kind of things are you looking for? You know, if they had a checkbox or a checklist, what well, would be the top five things you kind of got to make sure you can check all of them? I don't think there's such thing as too high. There's certainly such thing as too low. Today's buildings are efficient, wherein once they're warm, they stay warmer. You know, you can keep them cool. So there, there's really not a significant cost premium to heat the extra height. I mean that in the sense that some some tenants just don't need 40-foot clear height space. So you're, you're eliminating a whole bunch of, of potential tenants by having too high ceilings or ceilings that are, you know, of a high nature. I don't think so, because those guys don't necessarily have to install racking all the way up to the ceiling. But that being said, those guys that do need it can't fit in 15 clear. Right, sure. So the idea is certainly of a building that is uh, cost-effective to purchase. Typically, 40 clear buildings have a lot of specialized features, primarily on the fire suppression side because of how high they are, which also requires a tenant, a much more expensive tenant fit-up to support that additional level mm-hmm. of fire suppression. So we, we really look for, for high buildings. Let's just call it high buildings. Sure, okay. Uh, not low, low clear height for sure. Uh, in great locations, uh, we certainly look for buildings that can accommodate 53-foot trailers, which seems to be the standard today. And if uh, a user were to use something smaller, typically those function well. The, the challenge, of course, if you can accommodate a 53-footer is how do you move large quantities of product in and out of these buildings, which seems to be the nature of what our, what our real estate is primarily more transportation logistics focused yeah you know we're seeing a little bit of light assembly where you're sticking two or three pieces together or or perhaps taking bulk packaging and and turning it into retail packaging but we're not really seeing much standard in uh, manufacturing anything of that sort so certainly buildings that can accommodate a lot of product in and a lot of product out makes sense. Are you noticing this is a change? Do you think this is a a sort of a, a trend in the industrial space where that this type of demand is increasing in the GTA? I think it's been here for some time. It's certainly a trend in the sense that that's what we see today and into the future. 
But I just don't think it's economical for companies today to manufacture in Ontario, unfortunately. I um, I mentioned cross-dock facilities earlier, and I'll expand on that a little bit. And, and it's just a, it's a bit of an anecdote, but we had a cross-dock facility come into First National to finance about six years ago, seven years ago. And uh, the lease rates for that particular space was about $1.50 more. So I think they were six fifty to 7 bucks per square foot. On a net on a net rent basis, which was about you know like a buck fifty higher than the, the average rent in the, in the in the at the time, and we could not convince anybody that that cross dock specification, which means that there's doors on one side where trucks can unload and the the the, the, the goods kind of transfer across the the warehouse and exit on the other side into another. And I guess they're being sorted or or potentially maybe manufactured at the same time. And at the time, people just weren't familiar with the concept or and couldn't justify that there really was a value and that that tenants would pay additional uh, additional rent for that space. Uh, now it sounds like this is sort of the norm, right? Well, you're paying partly for uh, the larger or, or the more accommodating shipping apron all the way around because you're getting uh, less site coverage. Obviously, the dollar fifty comes from come from that, but they are relatively niche. I would say NOAA um, cross docks are not you know, wildly common you know, throughout kind of the West GTA. Well, I'd say though that they're becoming more and more common. Uh, the GTA is an interesting place to do business for distribution users because it is so sparsely spread out. Like what we think of as intensification is very. Uh, it's minimal in comparison to some of the large, larger metropolitan cities across the world. So the idea of moving goods, storing goods, but also moving them in a timely fashion around our city is very difficult. So I think you're going to see them as becoming much more prevalent. What's interesting about a cross dock is the concept of getting it off of a 53-foot trailer and onto a, a smaller vehicle to typically de- deliver to households. So I think that's a pretty cheap cross dock. And, you know, we'd love to pick something like uh, that yeah. up. Well, it was five years ago, too. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know where it would be today. You know, I would suggest that on a cross dock, a, a traditional cross dock, uh, being a, a very narrow building uh, with lots of doors on either side. And to Adam's point, with a significant shipping apron, potentially with some storage for trailers outside, you're into the mid-teens. Wow. On a net rent basis. Interesting. Yeah, I believe that. Do you want to get into rents here? I mean, I, I had mentioned it earlier before we came on the air that it was a curiosity to me that the industrial space has lower rents in the GTA than many other places in in, in Canada, which seemed uh, to defy the 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 logic of sort of just macroeconomics of supply and demand because there there seems to be a ton of demand for it. So you'd think that there'd be uh, an increase in the rents. Uh, and your comment was it's it's the ownership structures or it's the predominance of more private owners than than um, institutional owners. Well, that that's absolutely correct. And so not only uh, would I suggest we have a very large market, but we have one of the lowest lowest availability rates on record today in our market, which would would mean to me simply higher rents. And we're certainly seeing an uptick, but it's it's dimes and quarters. It's certainly not dollars. And, you know, I talked to some of the folks who are veterans of our industry, and they remind me that rents haven't changed all that much in 25 years. And in the GTA. In the GTA, for yeah. sure. But if you go to Montreal, they're, I, mean, I, I know they're in sort of the $9, $10, $11 per square foot range. I know Calgary, bad example now, but before um, what happened in, in Alberta market, they were in the 14 to $16 range. I mean, they were double or triple what they are in the GTA. And, you know, they're $6, $6.25 here in the GTA. You know, I think that it's an interesting comment because if you looked at sort of an aggregate, the amount of square footage that's owned by institutions versus privates, you'd certainly see that the institutions own a lot more real estate. But what I would say is that the privates uh, want to keep their space full and particularly want to retain good tenancies. We're seeing a lot of uh, very high retention rates across the board in terms of uh, industrial buildings today. And that's just a function of let's keep it full. And let's keep the rent coming in. It'll be interesting to see. There's a lot of uh, a lot of big base space, so very large buildings available out in the West GTA right now, primarily owned by institutions who are holding out for some large rates. And we certainly haven't seen any deals happen. I, you know, there's there's been a couple here and there, but there's probably a handful of deals that need to happen this year which will happen this year. It'll be interesting to see if those owners of real estate are forced to reduce their rates or they, they hold firm and you know, help to, to buoy up the rental market. And on the, the much larger space as well, typically you're going to find longer leases. So the math on waiting an extra six months to try and get that extra 75 cents in net lease rate can really make a difference. Whereas you're talking about a 20,000 square foot building, it might be a five-year lease, might be a three-year lease. So holding out for, for six months doesn't make as much sense. But those are the, the big the big bombers that are all coming up uh, 
or are already up now out in Milton. They was 600,000 square footers plus. Those ones can sit vacant for a while, but at some point they've got to got to make a move. So it'll be interesting to see the you know the, the lease rates achieved there for that portion of the market that is that new build and appeals to uh, you know different type of different type of tenant. Is fulfillment a buzzword, or is that actually a different segment of the industrial space? Like, can you define what the fulfillment means? To like, it, it kind of just is this buzzword that you're hearing these days, but I'm not sure it really means anything different than traditional warehouse space with with some uniqueness to it. Well, I think fulfillment is a lot more human intensive. Right, uh, where you actually have individuals walking through uh, the aisles or walking through mezzanines, actually physically picking up items, and there's some automation to that. But arguably, there's there's a lot more people in these buildings, so there's the people element in terms of conditions in the buildings have to be appropriate for people to be walking. Meaning more time. cafeteria space, more more parking, parking yeah. uh, better ventilation, uh, all those things. But I think fulfillment to every user is different. Fulfillment could be. Uh, my wife's home business working out of the garage or the basement to uh, Amazon million foot uh, distribution facilities to, you know, a retailer using their their back of the store to, to fulfill for online orders. There, fulfillment is certainly a buzzword and everybody is managing it differently, trying to figure out a profitable model to be successful in uh, this new age. And how is it impacting your business? We haven't really seen it impact our business a ton. We're fortunate that we don't have a large retail portfolio uh, within our holdings. I think that the retailers are certainly suffering, the bricks and mortar ones, who haven't been able to transform or embrace the new business. Uh, for, from our perspective, again, uh, all we do is uh, we provide solid, you know, not leaky roofs uh, to businesses to operate. And, and, and we find that the good users are figuring it out and, and the ones that aren't unfortunately are dying off, but new ones are coming in. To that point, not to bring up a sore issue, but you did lose Target as a, as a tenant in one of I think the condo developments downtown. I, or maybe I'm confusing this. No, no, that, yeah, that's, okay. that's right. So we actually yeah. lost Target in two places. <laughs> okay. No, I was like, God, didn't, why did you bring that up? <laughs> I, I don't mind it. I think it's, it's an interesting story. And for us, it turned out to be a win. For others, it's certainly been challenging. But certainly Target for us, and we're talking about uh, a development that we have at the corner of York, York and Harbor in downtown Toronto. Uh, it's a two million square foot development, about a million feet of condo space, and then a 800,000 square foot office building with 200,000 square feet of retail. Target was going, to, was going to anchor the retail component of that development, and obviously they did not. Uh, so we were left with uh, what was at the time a large hole to fill, but we're, we're now fully leased. The condos are fully sold out. We've got some great retailers going into that building. And Target certainly helped us uh, or pushed us to build the best possible big box retail in a, in a downtown uh, urban format. So I think you'll see some interesting things there as a result. But it was a good lesson that nobody's infallible. And the guys who were touting their balance sheet as a way to get landlords to do certain things for them and to break into some markets that would have otherwise been difficult for them to do so, unfortunately failed in Canada. And then the other option, uh, we had their head office location out in Mississauga and a building mm -hmm. that we, we managed for a large institution. And uh, we were left with 225,000 square feet, 200,000 square feet of suburban office space at premium rents that we had to go out and refill. In a market that's probably at 9% vacancy right now? I'd say take. at the time it yeah. was probably 18% vacancy, okay. and today's probably yeah, over 20. The, the suburbs are tough. What was interesting and what we're quite proud of is that we were able to turn that space around in uh, under six months mm -hmm. to a Canadian software company who, who's taken it over and, and embraced it in a, in a full way. Not to mention that we're able to get a nice settlement out of Target as well. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, they 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 were maintain their obligation under that lease. They would have had to. They maintained some of it some for of it, sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't say that we got a full recovery. There's, right. uh, that that would have been nice, but not the case. Keeping on this industrial, maybe we can jump to some office comp questions later. Um, what component, you know, of your of your business do you are you when you're when you're looking for new for new product is you know development versus you know acquiring existing buildings? It depends. Existing buildings can be candidates for redevelopment as well. So as we look at the markets, we've identified areas where we want to be. That's typically in the west and north GTA. And we look in those areas, both in established industrial nodes for opportunities for near-term or long-term redevelopment, 
and then we're also uh, looking at greenfield space. So we've got uh, lands up in Caledon that we're currently developing, and then we have uh, lands in Milton as well. And for those not from Toronto, both of those locations are both called an hour from downtown, just to get a relevant point of how far you got to go. Yeah, for, define for define an hour. It's it, at uh, three between, in the morning on between a Tuesday. thirty minutes and two hours, depending <laughs> on what time of the day it is, right? Yeah. Um, but to get Greenfield in Toronto, you do need to drive quite a bit. To, Bit from the downtown. I'm curious the difference. So uh, recall or re- remind everybody, we had um, Sean Fleming from Atropion a while back now. I guess episode sort of seven, eight, nine. You can scroll through your iPhone and look for it. Uh, and he, we were asking him the same question that I'll, that I'll pose to you about market versus off-market transactions and what his approach was. And, and he basically said, there's no question that the off-market stuff is uh, often more fruitful, but a lot more labor-intensive and a lot harder to find because there's, you know, he's a they're they're predominantly condo developers. So there's, you know. 30 guys out there knocking on every door all day long. So it's just so tough. That's on the condo space. On the industrial space, what's your position, market versus off-market? And you know, how do you go about looking for either? So I think it's all about control and the idea to control an opportunity or a deal. And we go about it in different ways to try to assert that control before others. It's easy in a marketed process. You just pay the most. But in a situation that's off-market, I think that's probably a troubling term for me. Today, everybody has knowledge. So the internet, the number of brokers that operate in this city, it is very rare that someone isn't familiar with what their neighbor just got uh, in terms of a sale or where the market is. And everybody has their own opinions. I think you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a true opportunity to achieve uh, some off-market opportunities because the speed at which information traveled was much slower. So if you came in the door at the right time and were telling the right story, there was really an opportunity to get something off market. Today, you're avoiding a process. I'd argue you're still paying top dollar for an asset, but you're avoiding the process. You're avoiding going, uh, exposing something to the market, potentially to have someone come in from left field and offer a number that is probably unreasonable, but there, there's, there's obviously rationale behind it. But it's really about getting deals done in a quiet fashion, quickly, and efficiently, but it's not really off market. Somebody I was speaking with, not not recorded on the podcast, but somebody I was speaking said that at this point, everybody's sophisticated or has access to a sophisticated opinion. So there's no more stealing a deal. There's no more of any of that. Everybody can kind of, if it's a development site, reverse engineer the value of the property. So it's just a function of you are going to pay market rates for everything no matter what, but it's just a matter of getting deals done. That you're not going to be able to steal any properties anymore. Now, steal, steal is the wrong word. That's insulting to uh, the process. But uh, craft an advantageous well, deal, uh, overly advantageous deal. I, I think it was John English that was saying also on this show about, you know, you really just have to have the most blind faith in your numbers or or be the most aggressive in your projections of where the market's going to be in a couple of years. And often you lose a deal and you say, I can't believe that guy thinks that he's going to get, you know, think talking about condo, he thinks he's going to get $800 a square foot on the sale in two years. And then, of course, two years goes by and it's eight. 50 and the guy knocked it out of the park, right? So I'm wondering if it's a similar kind of concept in the industrial world where you're you're trying to project what you're going to get and it's the guy that has the most, you know, maybe is the most risk averse, you know, that ends up, you know, with the highest bid. Well, I think if you're risk averse, it's difficult Sorry, to have the, the other way around. Yeah, the other yeah way exactly. Around. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's an interesting commentary, right? Because I think everyone has to rationalize their bid in a different way or else everyone would be bidding the same. I think for us Number one, if we want something, we will certainly get aggressive with our assumptions. But more often than not, we like to think that we have our eyes and ears on the market and boots on the ground in a different way that allow us to evaluate an asset just a slightly different than others. You know, maybe it's we have different outcomes for success. So we're not sort of beholden to one specific track. And that allows us to, to bid higher or you know to, to increase our bid in order to justify the win because we know that we have a bunch of outs not not necessarily outs but a bunch of different ways to win do you play in the industrial condo space at all so another interesting question my answer six months ago would have been no but the delta at which you can purchase real estate today condo it and then sell it off is becoming very dramatic and I think that's just a testament to the fact that there's a real opportunity for business owners in terms of tax advantage, but also opportunity to acquire debt that allows them to spend more per square foot on smaller units in order to control their own destiny. I think there's there's an allure to owning real estate uh, 
but they don't necessarily have access or the wherewithal to buy the whole building. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's enough of those users, those end users? I come putting my, you know, sorry, putting my lending brain on my my credit lending brain. I always worry that you know you're going to buy this two hundred thousand square foot space, demise it into two hundred units of a thousand square foot each, and you're going to sell them all off. And are there enough people out there uh, to buy those units? Is there enough end users that want that space to pay the what the the, the projections that you need in order to make it a, a viable option? I think that's all in the underwriting, yeah. and I think that you have to evaluate opportunities as they come. And at that point in time, you have to be reasonable in terms of what you think the conversion is going to take. It's typically a year or two year process. And you have to forecast no different than our friends on the high rise condo side and determine whether or not the market will be there for you. I think the prudent investor would be conservative in terms of what their outcomes would be and try to overshoot. But in this market, you got to be aggressive, and I think you have to be comfortable with your assumptions. It's speaking from a financing perspective, like I, I totally get that model. I mean, it makes perfect sense, and I, I can see that you can buy it at a certain square foot and sell it at, a, at a, you know, often a pretty good premium, right? I mean, sometimes it's 30 40% more than you paid for it with, with not a lot of effort going through the condo title and maybe some, some demising of space. The challenge, of course, is that there's not a real, there's not much uh, market comparables to determine what the true value is for those smaller units. I mean, I, you know, if you're trying to determine what the value of a condo apartment unit is, you just put a pin in a map and you can find, you know, 10 comparables in a, in a couple of square kilometer radius. But for that sort of industrial condo market, there's just not a lot of it happening yet, but it sounds like maybe it's growing in, in um, Allure. Well, I think naturally what we see in residential real estate sometimes permeates over into the commercial side of things. And it's simple. You take the last development, wherever it was in the city, add a premium to it and put it on the market and see what happens. <laughs> Seems simple when you say it like yeah. that. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's what I'm missing. Um, I, I don't think there is a risk in oversupply on the small industrial condo side. I think there is uh, a definite appetite for more. And I think we're going to see that, particularly in certain areas, Vaughn, uh, Richmond Hill, Markham, yeah, Scarborough. I, 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 sorry, let's, let's go down this road a little bit more because the way my brain works is like for the condos, condo, you know, residential condos, you know, I know if I'm buying a one-bedroom, I may need to graduate to a two-bedroom and graduate to a three-bedroom, so I might have to move two or three times. But if I'm a business owner uh, and I need 1,000 square feet today, in six months, hopefully, I've done a really good job running my business and I need 3,000 square feet. And hopefully, six months later, I've gr- done a good job of growing my business and I need 6,000 square feet. So go Going through that process, it, there's no end to how big of a space I may need as a, as a successful business owner. So going through the process of the transactions and purchasing that that unit doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So I worry that there just isn't nearly as much demand for the, that that sort of industrial space in a condo condominium type style. I don't think that that thousand, two thousand, three thousand square foot industrial condo owner is going to be in a condo forever. You know, I think what happens is that as those businesses get bigger and they get and they grow, they typically don't want to encumber their balance sheets in such a dr- dramatic way as they would uh, when they're a thousand square feet. So those guys will graduate. I think that creates a market for for future either as a small investor to go out and find someone to lease that condo or to turn it. But I, I certainly think that there are lots of new. As long as immigration continues to be uh, so prevalent here in the GTA, there's going to be a demand for those smaller smaller units. Good way to make that investment in the country as well as people try to fast track their permanent residency. So I think there's still going to be a, a dynamic market there. But I, I agree with you. I think that if we get, uh, you know, if we get, you know, what do they say? Uh, Pigs and hogs. Uh, mm, I think you know yeah. that analogy. <laughs> I think you got to be careful where in any space and in any vertical to make sure that you don't over oversaturate a niche. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. One more question out of, and I'll let you <laughs> stop hogging the mic. Um, <laughs> office condo. I mean, you have some office under your portfolio. Same question. Do you think there's there's a market or a, a new trend towards more office condos coming? You know, I started this conversation by saying that. I, I was interested in industrial real estate because it becomes part of a company's operations. Whereas I think an office is a place where people go and work. And we certainly try to, to add some frills in terms of amenities and community and make them interesting spaces. But at the end of the day, office is a place where people go and work. And really, industrial buildings were, become a part of the business. And so what I've certainly found in, in my business is that when you, when you take an office condo, people want to go there and work. 
They don't want to go there and deal with cleaning the bathrooms, sweeping the floors, dealing with potentially um, air conditioning units that aren't working, roof leaks. You see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we found is that the quality of office condos is depleted because you have absentee investor owners or even those who are actually occupying the spaces that they do own are focused on running their businesses, not on managing the real estate. And that's certainly why we're our business has been so successful because we it's a hands-off, leave it to us to manage the real estate and you focus on your business. I think that when you start to blur those two lines, uh, people's focus diminishes and there's potential for, for issues. So, no. That was a no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron, you can catch your breath. And I'll, uh, <laughs> Sorry. And I've got, uh, so my questions I've got actually relate to, you know, finding product in the market. We hear from, Everybody engaged in every aspect of trying to buy assets in all categories. There's It's tough to find product. There's no product. There's nothing good out there. But you obviously get deals done. You're growing the portfolio. Part of that relates to the Menkes name. How much does that help when you're when you're trying to open doors to get into to off-market deals specifically? Well, we got to be careful with the name for sure because sometimes we can increase the price for ourselves. But ultimately, there's no question. When, somebody call, when I call with that business card, People pick up the phone. People return your call. And they're from all walks of life, every single broker in the industry. Where we really go, though, is we try to develop personal relationships with all the people that are transacting in real estate before the deal happens. Doing stuff like this, creating awareness for who we are, what we're looking for, what we want to do, so that when people uncover opportunities, and those are typically the real estate brokers, they think of us first. Yes, it's about our pedigree and and our, our legacy that I hope to promote and continue. It's about our ability to transact, the fact that we're actually writing our own check, sometimes with your support from the lending community. (laughs) But nevertheless, we're writing our own check. We're not going out and trying to find the money after the fact. And just being solid people, people that that others want to do business with. And that is 100% the legacy that I've inherited by the company, you know, working for the company that I'm at. But that's also about what I try to do in my own business in terms of how I promote myself. Okay. The you actually kind of answered the question partially there, just about how often, in regards to your off-market deals, how often you're engaging with a broker to find that opportunity versus you dealing directly with an owner. You know, for me, it's real simple. If I'm in the office at lunchtime, Peter Menkes, who's the president of the division that I work for, will ask me, what am I doing there? <laughs> to me, it's real simple. This is, a, this is still one of the few people businesses. That's one of the things that I enjoy most about real estate. It's about getting in front of people. I spent a lot of time in the suburbs at chain restaurants, meeting with brokers and talking about ideas, sitting with guys like yourselves, talking about ideas. And it's surprising how through those conversations, we always come up with something. And, and you're pretty highly visible through both NAOP and SIOR. I, I think you've, you've hosted panels and, and you've really participated in a lot of those organizations to, to guess, I get, you know, get your, your visibility out there and then make us name along with it. Uh, has that paid dividends in terms of connecting with uh, opportunities? Definitely. You know, I think this is outside of everybody's comfort zone. I got to be honest, doing this today was outside of my comfort zone. But the idea. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not to cause a, because I'm sitting here. But yeah. nevertheless, the idea of uh, being out there and, and being a name that people recognize and are familiar with, of course, that helps in terms of funneling opportunities, but it's typically the active outreach. It's the picking up the phone, inviting people out to lunch, a golf game, maybe it's a beer after work. Those are the things that typically spurn opportunities. Rarely, although once in a while, does our phone just ring. Hmm. Who's your biggest competitor? It depends. (laughs) We are very fortunate to be in a lot of different lines of business. So it depends on the day. It depends on the asset. Time and time again, as we pursue assets on an off-market or a, a sort of a, through a fully marketed process, am I surprised to see who's around? And why, am I, why do I say that? Number one, because you'd think that if we're chasing this opportunity, the following five different companies would be chasing it too, and they're not always there. Similarly, you have new entrants into the space, both uh, you know, local and foreign, who seem to be stepping up as well. So I think we're in a really neat spot in the real estate industry today, hopefully for years to come, where real estate is a sexy business. People want to get into it. And I think that makes it competitive. It forces us all to be better. And 
forces us to continue to innovate, which is a lot of fun. We're working hard to keep interest rates low to maintain the status quo. Keep the party going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. To that point, do, do you do you find being a local guy, like being GTA centric and being you know solely focused on the GTA helps you sometimes with those negotiations with, with, with you're doing direct to, to ownership? It helps both in the negotiations to say, hey, we know this market as well or better than anyone else. But it also helps in terms of our access. You know, I think that, as I said, real estate is a people business. So the only way to interact with people is to be face to face with them. And if you're trying to cover larger geographies, I think you have to step back from that. Those who've been successful in working in several markets are ones that either have boots on the ground there or have a, an affiliate or partner who's an expert in that field. There's no question I'm a huge promoter of, of focusing on a local patch that you can cover, getting to know everyone uh, in the area, as many people as you can, because that's how you find those opportunities. And you're right. I think that it, once you develop an opportunity, sorry, once you develop a, a reputation of excellence and a reputation of execution, the deals find you. There's a pride of ownership. And, you know, when you're selling, I've heard, I've heard our clients say this all the time. When you're selling, you want it to know you're just going to somebody that also has pride in owning that that asset. So I think, you know, certainly the reputation of Mancus supersedes itself in the sense that people know that you guys are, you know, the top of the crop and are, are sorry, cream of the crop and, and pride yourselves in doing good work. You know, real estate is one of the few businesses where what you do, what you build, what you own doesn't go away. You know, the, that iPhone I see sitting on the desk over there in September is going to change and people will forget what, what that phone was. Let's, let's be honest. We're stuck with a lot of the real estate in this city for many, many years. And so we take that legacy very seriously and we want to better the quality of real estate and the community versus uh, the latter for sure. That's actually a really interesting point because you're very likely that, that iPhone will be the plaything of my children. <laughs> Whereas right now is very important. And it's funny as well when you when you drive around town with older developers and they'll they'll say with great fondness they'll talk about oh, like I, I built that and you know it was 30 years in the past but they they still hold a special place in their heart. Any money they made from it is probably long gone, but just to make an impact on the city definitely you know leaves them with a sense of pride. Well, and I do that too. You know, when I drive around with my wife and daughter, there often I love to point out things that I did. You know, and if I was selling software, that would be a lot harder to do. But you can drive around it, you can touch it, you can feel it, and I think that's I, you know I, I take a lot of responsibility, but a lot of pride in that. That's the obsession of real estate, right? Those of us that are in it and pot committed for the rest of our careers, it's like the matrix. No matter where you go, no matter where you are, you kind of see things a little bit differently. Everything in my mind is, you know, price per square foot or, you know, cost or whatever it is, right? It's not just a, a room or a wall or a door or a window or whatever. I'm curious what your opinion is on spec development and industrial. We'll start there, but also I'll, I'll ask my follow-up question at the same time so you can maybe answer both. Um, why is it more predominant in uh, the industrial space than, than any other in, in real estate? I think that uh, time to market's a big factor. So when you consider uh, industrial users, they're typically less proactive. They find uh, spikes in growth in their business or whatever the case may be. They just are less proactive in terms of finding space. So it's very, very important for them that when they make their moves, the, the building, the space is available. You know, we're, we're seeing some really interesting development in this city in the downtown core uh, on the office side. And some of that is being done pre-spec. And I think part of the reason why that happens, and we just experienced it at our One York development, while that was intended to be spec, uh, some of the office users that came in tailored the building to their specifications because of their ability, their being proactive. When it comes to industrial, like I said, in the space that we operate in, which is the one size fits most space, the idea is you move in and you start operating. There aren't a lot of special specialized characteristics that need to be put into the building. What you find are those, those who require them, so those who have climate controlled space, perhaps those who have specialized needs in terms of floor loading, uh, clear height, whatever the case may be. Those users of space will get in earlier. They'll get it. They'll participate in a development on a design build basis. But for the most part, users just need a, a roof overhead and uh, lots of doors and a flat floor. And that's what we provide them. It's actually funny you mentioned that. I used to be an industrial broker in the West GTA prior to lending. And that was one of the first things that really shocked me. Because when you're first starting out at that level, you're brand new. 
you're working on, you know, 10, 15,000 square foot deals. And so you'd be sitting in an office with somebody and they say, oh, my, my lease runs out in seven weeks. And you're sitting in an office full of furniture, looking out over a warehouse stuffed with racking. And you're thinking, I wouldn't handle my apartment in this fashion. <laughs> I, I would have more of a plan about what was going to happen in seven weeks than you've got for, you know, 15,000 square feet of operating business with, uh, you know, 15 employees walking around. And the you know, first time I ran into that, I kind of, you know, dropped my draw. And then it happened seven more times. And I, okay, that's the way it works, I guess, in industrial. Just kind of just wait till it's a really pressing concern. Then they make a decision and uh, move quickly to accommodate it. You know, I certainly prefer this to be the exception versus the norm, but I've been in situations where these are real timelines. We've met a tenant on a Thursday morning and we've had them, uh, we've given them access with a signed lease on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> you know, which boggles my mind because, you know, at the early, at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about, you know, availability rates being, I think you said it, uh, 2% or 3%. I mean, it's, it's, there's not a lot of space out there. You would think that they'd be a little bit more paranoid about being stuck. Um, with no place to go at all. You think so. That, that doesn't appear to be the case. And you know, I commend the brokerage community for trying to educate users that times they are a change in. But I certainly think that users of space, just particularly on the industrial side, are too focused on running their businesses and are not focused on the real estate. And they're not, they're not real estate people, so it is, it is uh, some understandable. We think of something like office. There they plan quite, uh, for at least larger spaces, plan uh, years in advance. Very, very different kind of attitude towards it. I think that has to do with the level of customization, though, on the part of the user, where, you know, someone has a particular fancy on how they're gonna, their office space is going to look, when really on the industrial side, you slap up the racking and you get to work, and you're much more focused on the product inside than you are on how it looks and how it functions. Do you think there's more spec development than, than development with, with tenants already leased up? Absolutely. The, the, the industrial market, uh, particularly... Uh, in our city is dominated by spec development. I think those that can't demonstrate that either their building is underway or it's built uh, have a very, very tough time attracting new tenants. And then I have to ask, how do you, how do you finance that? You call the guys the first national. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a legitimate question though, right? Because, because I mean, because maybe it's different for, for Mencus that comes with, with the, with sort of the, the, the history, the pedigree, and of course the recourse, right? You're a large, large institution that can provide sort of a guarantee saying, you know, don't worry, I will find a tenant. If I don't find a tenant or tenants, uh, you got me to back you up and I promise I'll make the payments. But, you know, lenders are predominantly concerned about what happens, what if, right? I got this two-year horizon where you've got to build this thing, or maybe it's faster to build a, to build an industrial box, but I got this, say, 12 to 18-month horizon where I've got to wait for you to finish it before I get any sense of security that you're actually going to have a tenant in there paying rents in order to cover the payments to my mortgage. And I'm surprised that, that there isn't more of a pushback from the lending community, or are you finding that there isn't? Well, I think there's a couple of things, right? I think, number one, uh, when you look at the delta between the cost to build versus the finished cost or the finished value, uh, there, there's enough of the delta in there that lenders are getting more comfortable. There's room for error, basically, right? <laughs> for sure. Uh, certainly the time to market from when that real equity uh, needs to go out the door. So the idea, I would argue it's about nine months to build a building. Okay. So uh, certainly that, that time the money is out there without something it's less, backing it. Certainly it's, it's less certainly than a 40-story apartment building or whatever it may be. Yeah. But the people that are building on spec are those that either have an excellent pedigree and they're a reputation for success on the private side or they're potentially even self-financing with a lot of these institutions. There's a lot of uh, pension fund partners involved in some of the really big ones going up in the West GTA. And a lot of those are done with zero debt as well. Right. Well, that was, that's where I was getting it. I don't think a lot of these are being financed. I think most of them are done just cash. Exactly. I think that you would be right. And then they get the tenants in and then they go and they finance it. Or potentially never. never right. Yeah. A lot of our pension fund clients on the third party side um, have a mandate to use zero debt. What a horrible idea. <laughs> we always like to end off each uh, you know, kind of guest segment by asking you to provide two pieces of advice to your younger self. When you were back in 2007, not knowing the job market was about to crash, uh, what advice would you have given to yourself uh, coming into the industry? Well, the low-hanging fruit, as we talked about before we started, is just to buy all the real estate that I could. Overpay for it, just buy it. <laughs> and yeah. potentially not sell that. Those six caps look really attractive now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> 
and get as much debt as I could perhaps as well. <laughs> I think you don't know what you don't know and it's much easier to look back than it is to look forward. But, but certainly in our case, we've, we've been very successful in the real estate market and I wish I bought more real estate. I think the other thing too is just to step back and, and try to look at the macro view. It's, it's very myopic when you're in a deal or you're looking at opportunities to get focused on just that and to step back and look globally at what, what the opportunities are, what's happening in the market, what the trends are, to try to be a little bit more astute. Perfect. Up next, we've got our news. And so I've got an article that kind of takes us away from all of this to nothing we discussed. It's about Canada's biggest cities move to regulate Airbnb, but it's no easy task. So Noah, what do you know about Airbnb? Well, I, you know, I am a consumer of Airbnb it's- for sure. Uh, with a with a young family, uh, traveling to a hotel is, is challenging, both in terms of the having to have multiple rooms, but also uh, not having a kitchen and such. So we frequently use Airbnb as an option when we travel as a family. I didn't even think about that aspect. I just, I always focused on kind of just uh, generally they're cheaper than hotels, but I didn't actually think about the fact that you have full use of an apartment, not just a... Or even a house. We were, yeah. we were a couple of weeks ago, we were in California and we rented a, a small three bedroom home and it was wonderful. You know, in terms of uh, being able to, my, my daughter had her home room, the homeowner had a crib for us. Uh, it was much more accommodating than a hotel could have ever been. Hmm. What about you, Aaron? Are you a consumer? Or? My mother uh, uses her three-bedroom home in California as an Airbnb whenever she's not there. It wasn't my mom's house, was it? Year? <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. Maybe it was. <laughs> So the, the, I guess the, the regulations proposed um, in Vancouver, city staff recommended that short-term rental in non-principal residences, meaning investment properties, should remain illegal. And Toronto has proposed that short-term rental hosts to be limited to renting out their principal residences. So same, same uh, idea for both cities. Uh, what it would really do is limit the number of people that are Airbnb landlords professionally. I even know a couple personally that do this and it's profitable they'll just rent out 30 condos and just run them through airbnb and if they get caught once in a while doing it then sure they shut it down as rent a new one so i have a friend who then will do a at a sort of a property management for those people so they just ha- they don't have to do anything he'll actually go and, and make sure that they're clean and, and collect the keys and give the keys out and you know coordinate all the you know sort of the receivership of the of the of the new um the new occupants so these are really they could be silent even right like these private investors don't have to do anything just buy the condos and let somebody else run it for them. Yeah, I, I had a good friend who would fall within these regulations. He, a midlife crisis, I suppose. I hope he doesn't listen to this. He, he just decided that he had enough of working for a while, took a, you know, a six-month hiatus, and listed his downtown Vancouver condo, hired a property management company, and he would check the funds going in and out from you know all over South America, and he just would go from city to city and had a fantastic time doing it. So there are you know and that and that was his principal residence. So he would not be running afoul of these, although he'd be using it in a similar fashion. But just to get perspective on the numbers: uh, approximately thirty two hundred properties listed for rent on Airbnb in twenty sixteen would be removed, uh, leaving about seventy six hundred. So you're looking at around a third of Airbnb hosts are professionals. So it would have an impact on Airbnb on their bottom line. I can see why they're not incentivized to fully follow through on enforcing these rules. It's one thing to put them in effect, but the enforcement is going to be a lot of headaches for a lot of city inspectors. I don't even know how you would uh, how you'd handle that. I'm, but. I'm torn on this, right? Because I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart. So I just feel like this is just, you know, intervention in, in market forces. And But at the same time, like I do appreciate, you know, if I was buying a condo downtown and I got in there and then I discovered that, you know, two to half or you know, even on the floor, let's say I'm on a floor with eight units and six of those units are short term rentals. And every week there's somebody new coming in. You never know if you're going to have, you know, students tearing the place apart or children's crying. Right? You never have that sort of consistency. Like, like no, one is, no one is family. In yeah. Family. Right. But I mean, so I, I do understand that there is sort of that nimbyism against it. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. I haven't thought about it enough. But you know what? And I'm a capitalist at heart as well, and I think that the market needs to figure itself out at the end of the day. But, you know, from my perspective, I'm by no means a power user of Airbnb. But, you know, where I see regulation or where I see concern is the way that these uh, properties are being marketed, right? If someone is as freewheeling as we just discussed, they're renting from someone else and, and trying to participate in some arbitrage. You know, there, there's no security in going to a foreign city expecting to be enjoying a vacation and, and have 
potentially the rug pulled out from under you. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these opportunities are marketed on various different sites at different mm-hmm. pricing and things like that. So naturally, I think the market will figure itself out. But in the interim, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with a little bit of regulation to protect the users, but but also to protect the communities around them. Because I can't imagine what it'd be like to to own a condo next door to one of these Airbnb party places, if I can call it that, and have to be forced to to live with that every night. Maybe it's a condo corp thing, right? Maybe there's a way to do it where like, it's the condo corp responsibility to start managing these things. Where maybe you say, okay, fine, short term rentals can only be on floors six, twelve, and seventeen, or something like that, right? And every other floor it has to be you know user user occupied. I don't know. I'm just. There or, must be or no short-term rentals at all, right? And that well, which could is what, which is where pricing. I think they're going, though, right? I think that it, which that's uh, I think that's part of the. I know I do know there are condo corps out there now and developers that market their buildings before you know pre-development as no short-term rentals allowed, right? Then you're you're back to enforcement. That's the tricky part. Right, yeah. Or or you. Well, as I an owner, you lease it to somebody on a long-term basis, and they they violate the rules. I mean, if I'm an activist them. condo occupant, I'm just on Airbnb every once in a while, typing in my address, and if one pops up and I live in a in a place where there are no short-term rentals, it immediately goes to the condo board, and that condo owner gets reprimanded in some form or fashion, right? I think I guess then you got to figure out what kind of fines or penalties or what's the punishment. I just think we have to be careful not to scrutinize those that are operating professionally. Because I certainly know that uh, it, it has made tra- travel feasible for me, and again, I, I you know I have one perspective, but it's made travel very feasible for me uh, with a family. In potentially, uh, if I had to go to a hotel, it would be less so. They'd be less likely to travel. Exactly. Right. So it impacts the tourism then, and there's additional revenue that's lost to the city if they really do kind of clamp down on this, as it seems they're gearing to do. It really, they're focused on a very small segment of users of these short-term rentals that are partying. Or, or those that are breaking the law in terms of or breaking their lease contracts. Like I don't, I don't believe that this is the majority of users or, or uh, you know, vendors on, on this marketplace, and it's just unfortunate. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that 100. percent It's just every time somebody throws a 200 person party in an Airbnb condo, it makes the papers and gives the impression that uh, there's yeah, does, they don't they don't actually document the 15,000 other users that had no problem whatsoever, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's even looter stories that I wouldn't want to share on a podcast like this. But if you Google it, it's pretty unbelievable sometimes. Go Google it. <laughs> uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to thank Noah Gordon for, Thanks, for coming Noah. today. Yeah, thank was, you, guys. Was this was fun. Yeah. Thanks to our sponsor, First National. Um, if you enjoyed the episode and want to hear more, please subscribe in iTunes uh, or tell a friend. We appreciate that very much. And look forward to the next one. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.